Since you enjoy this show, I thought I'd throw out there another podcast you might like. It's a show about the intersection of design, technology, and the creative process. It's the Design Better podcast. And in each episode, hosts Eli Woolery and Aaron Walter bring you conversations with inspiring creative thinkers like John Cleese and David Sedaris, people who bring design and technology together like Tony Fadal, co-inventor of the iPhone and the iPod. So far, some standout episodes for me have been when they talk to John Cleese of Monty Python about creativity. That is one of my favorite topics and one of my favorite people. Then also one of my favorite musicians, Tycho, about his creative process. And they talk with Seth Godin about how creativity is an act of generosity. I've always been fascinated by design, the creativity behind it, the implementation of it, both to improve our lives from a functionality and user interface standpoint, also from an artful bringing beauty into the world approach. So whether you're a design curious person like me or a design pro, Design Better is a great listen that inspires and informs. Subscribe to the Design Better podcast at designbetterpodcast.com or in your favorite podcast app like the one you're using right now. and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I am very excited to bring back to the show both Michael Hyatt and Megan Hyatt Miller. They've both been on the show before, but never at the same time. Of course, you know Michael Hyatt is the founder and chairman of Full Focus. It used to be called Michael Hyatt and Company. They've changed the name and appropriately so, because they do just more than just represent his personal brand. They are a full-focus company. Megan Hyatt-Miller is the president and chief executive officer at Full Focus. She's also the co-host of their popular Business Accelerator podcast, and they are here to talk about their brand new co-written book, Mind Your Mindset, The Science That Shows Success Starts With Your Thinking which draws upon the latest insights in performance psychology, neuroscience, cognitive science, as well as case studies from Megan and Michael's own clients. In this conversation, we explore the power of stories and the stories about the problems we face and how those narratives determine our strategy and with our strategy, our results and our actions. And we dig deep into the book a bit and we talk about identifying the problems and the story that surrounds that problem, and then interrogating that story so we can get to the truth and then imagine something creatively that's going to work better as a narrative and then using these practices to cut through this fog of false narratives and offer more clear, creative solutions for people to achieve their goals. We are held back so often. We are self-sabotaging so often, not only because we are thinking the wrong way about things, but because we don't know we're thinking the wrong way about things, and we've got to undo some of that self-talk. We've got to undo and unravel, honestly, the unreliable narrator in our head. And this is a great episode for digging into that and finally figuring out how to move forward. I had a great time talking with Michael and Megan. I know you're going to love this conversation with Michael Hyatt and Megan Hyatt Miller. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome back to the show Michael Hyatt and Megan Hyatt Miller. 
Megan, Michael, welcome back to Beyond the To-Do List. Thanks, Eric. Great to be with you. Michael, it's been a while. And yes. Megan, it's been about a year. And avid listeners know that I just re-released the conversation I had with Megan about the last book, When It Works, Succeed at Life. You've got a brand new book out. Before we get into that, though, I just got to say, like, what a better way to kick off January and productivity than talking to you guys. And congratulations on the name change of the company. Thank you. That was a big deal, but it went pretty smoothly. So I know that that was something that, you know, you'd been wanting to move away from the legacy being, you know, your name. You're not a vain person at all. It's more, what's the impact I'm making in the world and what's the company doing? Can you tell me, like, where did this come from? Like, obviously, it's obvious to us now. Oh, duh, focus. That makes perfect sense. That's where you've been heading all along. Products that include that name and books that include that name in it. But why did you land on focus? Well, you know, we, as we thought about it, what we saw in the world and kind of in the market is that there were so many things that were assaulting our focus. I mean, if you compare life today to 20 years ago, I mean, we've always had a lot on our plates and people have always felt like they had more to do than there was time for. But now with, you know, the advent and really being at the apex of social media, among many other things, there's so many inputs. And if you're a person who cares about accomplishing important things with your life and doing what we call the double win at full focus, winning at work and succeeding at life, there are a lot of things that threaten that. And really what it takes to be able to accomplish those things and to really close the gap between where you are and, and what you want for your life is focus. And so we feel like the ability to provide solutions and tools that help people focus and improve their productivity so that they can accomplish their most important goals is really what we're here to do. So the name change just felt like a natural next step to provide more clarity for people about who we are and what we do. I think there was another part of it too, Eric, that was, you know, I built this company by making myself the brand. And one of the things I, I think that Megan and I came to the realization of is that that has its limitations. And certainly there are big corporations that exist today that have somebody's name on it. So it's possible to do that, but it's harder because I wanted whatever it is that we're creating to be beyond me. I didn't want to be the hero. I wanted the products to be the hero or more importantly, the message, our mission to be the hero. And so we thought we need to kind of, you know, we, we use the personalization or the personality brand got us to this point, but now we need to depersonalize or de, I don't know what you call it, but depersonalize it for my, my name and likeness so that it was more this concept of full focus as the hero. Uncoupling. And maybe that's the, the right word. So Wait, I like that. Yeah. So it's, it's a very on trend word for right I know. now. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> that's not a word I use, but it, it it's fine. And I think the thing that stuck with me was it made perfect sense. I think I remember watching, I know I got the email announcement and then there was a video of the two of you talking about it, and it just made sense. And I think the thing that I really admire, to be quite honest, was that it wasn't even an idea that either of you had. It sprung up from somebody in the middle of just doing the thick of it work and looking at the products across the board and saying, the answer's here somewhere. Where is it? What is it? It's a needle in a haystack. But it was a, it was a very obvious needle. It was. Once we knew the answer, you know, like everything, it's obvious in yeah. hindsight. And yeah, it was actually our marketing team. I had charged them with figuring out how to kind of make sense of our brand, you know, like all living things. It had grown really exponentially over time. And we had all kinds of different things that we were doing. And we'd been intentional about pairing those back and getting more focused, ironically, over time. And so when I went to them and said, hey, 
I want you guys to work on kind of a next level iteration of this that would help to create more clarity for our customers. They really happened upon this idea. They actually presented us with two other ideas. And this was sort of their, uh, they, were, they were a little embarrassed to share it, you know, because they thought, gosh, this is it's kind of risky to propose taking the founder's name off the company. But they did. And once we thought about it, it really did seem right. You know, I think, Dad, I think you ha- you had to sort of like, have a moment with yourself and realize, oh, yeah, this is the best thing for the business, which took a second. But yeah, it was it was funny because I happened to be on sabbatical. I was taking the summer that happened. I was taking three months off and uh, Megan said, oh, we had a meeting today about kind of the future of the company and the name of the company. And that that wasn't a new conversation. We had kind of talked about the possibility in the past, but couldn't come up with anything better. And so she said, so I want you to watch this video from this meeting. And so I watched it. And it kind of took my breath away because, first of all, and it, there's nothing wrong with this. It's just natural. But they were talking about me like I was an object. You know, we're going to get rid of that thing and we're going to add this new thing. Like Megan said, it took me about 24 hours. And I think this is a good lesson for business owners. But I think that when your only focus, and this happened with succession planning too, but when your only focus is on what you're about to give up or what you're going to lose, then it's really easy to fall into scarcity thinking and to try to preserve what you had and not look at the possibilities of what the new proposal would make possible. So once I started asking myself the question, and it took about a 24-hour period, when I said, okay, what is this going to make possible for the business and for me personally? I got super excited, and then I was all in. So as I'm listening to you tell this story, I can't help but listen to it through the lens or look at it through the lens, I guess. It's a better way to put it of this book that we're going to talk about here. And by the way, I think I misspoke and said the company's called Focus. It's full focus. Let's not forget that we want to fully focus. So let's fully focus on the new book here real quick. So it's called Mind Your Mindset. And as soon as I saw that part, regardless of the subtitle, I already knew where you were going. I already knew, and And yet it was still surprising and awesome. Lots of great stuff in here. And then the subtitle, The Science That Shows, Success Starts With Your Thinking. And I just couldn't help but, yep, obviously it's the next title from all of you at the company because thinking and mindset and perspective and approach is such a huge recalibration or pre-calibration for action. But I'm curious, where did you come up with this idea? Like the, the germ of the idea came from somewhere. This is a big piece, perspective, your thinking, narration, narrative, when it comes to what you've been doing all along. But what was the catalyst that said, oh, there's the next book. This is what it has to be. Well, Megan may have a different answer than I do, but for me, it really began back with an executive coach that I had starting back in 2006 and through the Great Recession. Eileen Meething is her name. We dedicate the book to her and to also a friend of Megan's. But um, Eileen began to explore my thinking in the context of executive coaching. She said, I know you're really focused on the results. You're a very much an outcome-based kind of person. And she said, but we both realized that those results are influenced by, maybe even determined by the actions that you take. And so I think for most people, if they want to improve their results, they just double down on the effort, you know, put more time in, more work in, or try to work smarter, you know, try to figure out, you know, is there a more efficient way to do this or whatever. But she said to me, she said, all actions are influenced by your thinking. So that if you really want to change the results, you got to go upstream to the thinking And you've got to explore your thinking. You got to, first of all, become self-aware of your thinking. 
And then you've got to intentionally change the way you think about things if you're going to get a different result. See, and I think of the whole just renaming of the company and the rebranding and everything through that lens. Like, what was the narrative process? I mean, you kind of talked about it already. It's you took about 24 hours. You kind of analyzed what you were thinking, honestly, even what you were feeling, maybe as being treated as an object. And then, (laughs) you know, realized, no, wait a second. The story that I was telling myself when I first heard the news was one thought, was one feeling. But is the story better off? Am I a better narrator if I allow this change to happen? What are the possibilities that this allows? Well, and because I've had a lot of practice on this over the years, I think I was able to get to a different story or to at least be self-aware of my thinking in the moment. And by the way, I had a, a similar kind of experience recently. So I had major heart surgery this fall in September. So as a result of that, I've been in cardiac rehab now for a couple of months. So we were sitting around the table with my other fellow patients. And the nurse that was leading us said, okay, so what did your heart attack mean for you? Or what did the heart surgery mean for you? So we were kind of going around the table. And so one guy said, this is the beginning of the end. This is the decline. And now it's just inevitable that, you know, my best days are behind me and I'm just going to basically manage the decline until I'm gone. I thought, wow, first of all, good for him for being honest. But he really wasn't aware that that was a story. That wasn't anything factual. Now, contrast that, and I told this story in that same group. I had one of my doctors call me when I was still in ICU after my surgery. And I was conscious and awake and all that. So he called me and he said, look, he said, I want you just to kind of rehearse the facts. You are a guy that worked out all the time. You took great care of yourself. All your vitals were great. But your, you know, your genetics just caught up with you. And so all that's behind you. Don't think about it again. You can't change one thing about it. And he said, think of it this way. Your whole life's in front of you. You just had a major reboot. You're in even better shape than you've ever been. You've got more blood flow than you've ever had. And I can't wait to see what you're going to create in this next season of your life. Well, that's a completely different story. And it's a much more empowering story And it's been really encouraging for me to kind of live into that. Yeah, there's very different stories going on there between, you know, what your cardiologist and doctor were saying there to you. And of course, you have to then accept that narration and then become your own narrator there. But it's very different from what the other guy was saying, where it was the beginning of the end. Well, let's talk a little bit about this concept of the narrator. I guess we haven't really fully explained that. Can you explain, like, what does the concept of the narrator present as far as the stories that we're telling ourselves? I think that this is a really revolutionary idea for a lot of people and certainly for us when we became aware of it. It's the idea that there's what happens to you, which is observable things like you would put in a police report, you know, at 6.59 p.m. He walked down the street. He was observed doing this. You know, it's kind of like boring, factual stuff. And then we have this voice in our head, really our brain, that is trying to make sense of our experiences and make them cohesive and puts a narrative, a story around those experiences. So we're sort of not left in chaos, you know, and in a way, though it's not always helpful in our, our modern experience of life, it's benevolent. You know, it's trying to keep us out of trouble. It's trying to help make sense of the world. It's trying to predict what might come next so we aren't in danger. And it's actually a a pretty cool thing. The problem is, 
is that this narrator is always running in the background, always interpreting the experiences that we have. And because its primary purpose or outcome is our safety and self-preservation, sometimes the stories that it tells us are not aligned with what we're actually trying to accomplish. So we find ourselves in situations where if we're not aware, we just kind of take that story as being the same thing as the facts. But it's not the same thing. And usually it pops up as something negative. And that doesn't mean that you're doing anything wrong. If that's your experience, that's all of our experience. But what we have discovered through both the science and our own experiences is that you can actually change the story that you're telling yourself, which then gives you access to different kinds of actions and solutions and strategies, which ultimately impact your result. But the first step is really becoming aware that you have this narrator that's just kind of always talking in your head. Well, and the identifying of the narrator, I think, is the key here. As we were just talking, I, I can't help but hear that story. And again, the guy that says this is the beginning of the end, I, I'm curious. I am naturally curious as to whether that was something his own narrator in and of himself had told him and was telling him and was saying, this is the story now, or if he had picked that up from some other external narrator and then adopted it. Yes. Well, that often happens because it could be our parents. It could be an important colleague. Years ago, this was back in the late 80s and the early 90s, I started a book publishing company with a business partner. That company took off like a rocket. We decided that we needed more distribution. So we got into a relationship with a distributor. Long story short, we ended up basically bankrupt. You know, all of our assets were confiscated by banks and other people who had liens on them. So we didn't even have enough assets to truly go bankrupt to redistribute to the people we owed. So then shortly thereafter, a really important mentor said to me, he said, you know, you're not very good with money, are you? And I can literally remember where I was and what I was wearing when I had that conversation. And that stuck with me. That became my truth for probably over a decade. And so whenever I would be faced with an investment or a financial decision or whatever, then that narrator would say, hey, don't forget, you're not very good with money. And, oh, by the way, you went bankrupt. And so this story was getting reinforced every time I had a money decision to make. And so at some point, thank God, I kind of woke up from that and just said, is, is that really true? I mean, I had one experience. And a lot of people have gone bankrupt only to rebound into enormous success. So that's not a given. I thought, you know, am I really bad with money? Or maybe I just haven't been educated on how to use and how to manage money. So that began a process of me educating myself about money. And so that story didn't have to be static. It certainly wasn't out there in the sense that it was reality. It was just a story that was assembled from a a few facts. And it was me, as Megan said, trying to make sense of my life and trying to explain what had happened. But what I didn't realize and took me a decade to figure out is that that story was optional. I could tell a different story based on those same facts. Now, obviously, we don't want to wait a decade to identify the narrator. So how can we start to analyze in a safe way, in a way that's in the light of the truth, We identify the narrator and it's not, I mean, again, sometimes the truth hurts, but like there's a way to be gentle about it and there's a way to be blunt about it. Sometimes you've got to go one way or the other, but like what's a self-care? I don't even want to use those words, but I do. What's a way that shows care for yourself as you identify the narrator? 
Eric, I think that this goes back to what I said a minute ago, and we really get into a three-step process for how to do this in Mind Your Mindset. But as you're going through the first step, which is to identify your narrative, it's very important to be kind to yourself and recognize that you didn't do anything wrong by having a disempowering story. You know, your your brain is on your side, it thinks, you know, it's it's a little behind. It could, it could catch up a little bit in certain ways, but it's trying to be helpful and it's trying to keep you out of danger. And so it's always looking back at the past and it's always looking forward at the future and what, what bad thing might happen, what bad things happen in the past, and then trying to circumvent those things as it launches you into the future. And so if you can just recognize that this is a, a default response that your brain is serving up to you. But you can go to the next step that we talk about in the book, which is to interrogate that story. And so once you develop self-awareness with kindness, with self-compassion, because it's not helpful to beat up on yourself, again, you know, your brain's trying to help, then you can begin to interrogate and try to shake loose the parts that are fact from the narrative that you've laid over the top of that, or that your brain has really laid over the top of that. And once you start to separate those things, you can interrogate the narrative part, the story part, even though it feels true, once you recognize it's actually not true, it's not really true or false. I mean, it's just it's just a subjective interpretation of events. Then you can begin asking, what else could be true? And that's really when we go to the third step, which is to imagine a better story. And what I love about this, um, like you said, you know, sometimes the, the truth hurts. It can be difficult to realize that you've been telling yourself a story that's very disempowering and has led to perhaps really negative results in your life that you don't like. You know, maybe you're working way too much or you're spending time on things that aren't important because of a story that you've been telling yourself. And that can be hard. But it's also really freeing to realize you have agency that you may never have realized you had previously. And you can interrogate that story and you can come up with something better that you can adopt that will help you get the results you actually want in your life. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I couldn't help but go back through and think of all the times that one or both of you have been on the show before talking about the different books that have come out from yourself or the company. And I kept thinking about this concept of thinking and narration and interrogation when I was looking at when it works, succeed at life and the double win and living forward and life planning and free to focus and your best year ever. Like I kept thinking about you're kind of you're practicing what's in this book 
while walking through the steps in those books. You just aren't aware of the concepts from this one yet. Well, I think that's true. And I, I noticed from the very beginning, the very first product I ever produced when I founded this company in 2011 was a course on how to get your book published. And I noticed that I spent the first section of that course on mindset. And then almost everything I did subsequent to that, I'd always start with mindset. When I wrote my book, Platform, there's a whole section on mindset. Because how we think about what we're doing influences the outcome. I used to have a golf buddy. He's uh, deceased now, but a really good friend. And uh, we'd go out golfing usually every Saturday morning. And whenever he would hit a bad shot, he would say to himself, you idiot, why do you always blow these chip shots? Or why do you always blow the drive or whatever? And guess what? You get more of what you focus on. And for him, then his game would begin to unravel. So his thinking, he's an idiot. He always does this, was producing a certain action. And it was all at the level of his subconscious. And this is what the neuroscience really helps us to understand. These are neural pathways that have been cut in our brain. And once he starts with that trigger, then he just goes down that neural pathway and his game falls apart. And so, you know, the, the really great golfers, you know, I know Tiger Woods at his height, other uh, golfers, they say something different. You know, when they hit a great shot, they say to themselves something like, you know, I'm fantastic with my drives or whatever, but they're reinforcing the positive because they're creating a different story. And it's all about that mindset. And I, I remember reading a book years ago, The Inner Game of Golf. And it was all about this very thing about how we approach it. And in the book, one of the things he says, he says, you know, a lot of people take a practice swing. And for a lot of people, the reason they do that is because they have this story going on in their head that they probably need some practice before they actually hit the ball. But he said, if you're confident, just go up and hit it. You know, and I thought, wow, that was revolutionary. And so I started doing that and I played better golf because I had more confidence and ultimately life and golf, everything else is a game of confidence. Michael, I remember we were talking about best year ever years ago, probably almost 10 years ago now. And the concept of not focusing on your weaknesses, but focusing on your strengths came up in that. And this illustration of when race car drivers are going around the turn. Yes. You don't look straight. You look to the left. If you're doing a left turn, you look to the left. You don't look straight because you're going to run right into the wall because you're focusing on the wrong thing. Yeah, that's actually a story that I got from Tony Robbins. And he went to, you know, you can go to these race car driving schools where just as an amateur, you get the experience of learning to drive a race car. And you have somebody that's kind of your co-pilot that's, you know, in the seat next to you. And the guy told Tony this. He said, look, when you go around this curve, you're going to be going so fast and it's going to look like you're going into the wall. But do not look at the wall. He said, you got to look at where you want the car to go. And so Tony said, okay, got it. So he went into that turn. And just naturally, and again, this is the neural pathway, part of the neuroscience, is he just automatically got focused on the danger, the wall. And, and what did his co-pilot do? What did the other driver do? He literally pushed his face toward the road and said, look at the road. And he did, and he was okay. Now, if only we had that co-pilot inside of our <laughs> head at all times, pointing our face to say, look at the road, look at the road. Uh, speaking of the, the science, there's so much in here pulled from so many different places. I'm curious, what were some of the like 
most surprising findings when it came to the neuroscience and thinking that as you were doing the research for the book that you discovered? Well, I think from my perspective, you know, just to summarize, the the biggest thing that I took away that actually should give all of us hope is that our brains can change. You know, I, I think sometimes it can feel like if you're in a difficult place with your thinking and you're you're not experiencing the results you want and you don't know why, that it, there's not a lot you can do about it. it. Can almost feel fatalistic, you know. And and this time of year, people are thinking a lot about goals and things they want to accomplish and changes they want to make. And a lot of us set the same goals year after year. And, you know, a lot of our work is around goal achievement. So this is another area that we've done a lot of research in. And it's hopeful to me that the things that we think, the patterns that we have fallen into sometimes for many years are actually reversible. You know, you are not stuck where you are today with the thoughts that you've been thinking that have led to the results that you continuously experience. Your brain is plastic. You really can cut new neural pathways and you can reinforce those with practice. I mean, this is not like some kind of woo-woo, like manifest it kind of thing. This is in your actual brain. This is happening and you can cut those new pathways with practice. And you, you know, you just said a second ago, Eric, wouldn't it be awesome if we had this co-pilot that could grab our face and, you know, shove it back toward the road instead of the wall? In a way, in mind your mindset, that's what we're teaching you how to do. We're teaching you how to come alongside your own brain and be your own co-pilot, because with practice, you can learn to look at the road and not the wall. And I think, you know, all the science points to that, that we are not stuck or frozen, that our brains are plastic, and we can cut these new neural pathways if we develop the self-awareness and then diligence around, you know, interrogating and imagining a new story. As we're talking, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, the old dog learning new tricks and that it's right. not, you know, you can learn new tricks. It's totally possible. And I'm thinking of, you know, when we talk about habits with the trigger and the reward and just wait, no, if we're rewarding the wrong thing and you get triggered by this and then you reward it or you cope with certain mechanisms to to treat that. What we're talking about here is basically don't look at the wall, look where you want to go and then create the new pathways towards that. Totally. Well, you know, I tell a story in the book, Eric, about my debilitating fear of public speaking. And this is a really vulnerable story to tell. I have told it publicly in other places prior to this book, but I've not told it in writing before. And uh, I grew up in high school and beyond with a just utterly debilitating fear of speaking to the point that you know, I was involved with a small group in my church and I couldn't even read aloud. You know, I like go around and read passages of scripture or a book or whatever. I couldn't even read aloud in front of like six or eight people. I just, my voice would just freeze and I would just start to panic. And it all really came from watching a friend of mine in high school who delivered uh, a world presentation in front of the class, got overwhelmed with anxiety, ran out crying, and I found her in the bathroom in a puddle of tears. And I, I said to myself, so this is where the story comes in, I never want to be publicly humiliated like that, losing control of my body. And I just assumed, like, I, because I felt anxiety when I would get up in front of people, that that was the next step. So fast forward, you know, now I'm in a professional, you know, setting and my career is building and I keep avoiding anything that would involve having me in front of people to speak, opportunities, book projects, whatever. Well, then, inner full focus or back in the day, Michael Hyatt and company and I continue to to grow in this company, and ultimately it becomes clear that I'm going to lead the company, become the COO, and then eventually the CEO, and I would need to speak. And, and I know this kind of crisis point is coming. 
And so about five years ago or a little more now, uh, my team came to me and said, hey, we, we're going to do this big live event. We want you to keynote. And I took a big gulp and said reluctantly, okay. And keep in mind, nobody knows that I have this fear. Only my husband, not my dad. Nobody knows. I mean, this is like my secret shame. And I, I couldn't you know, emphasize that more. I had so much shame around it. And I was all about, I thought I would lose control of my body and be humiliated. So I say, yes, well, this is going to be a keynote in front of 800 people. So, you know, imagine person terrified of public speaking, going to speak in front of 800 people. So I said, yes, not knowing how I'm going to do it. I ended up calling a friend who is a speech coach in tears in at the uh, American Airlines gate in Chicago just bawling, you know, about I've got to face this fear. I got to do it. You know, I can't, I can't keep cutting my life short, you know, making it small. And so I went on a six week process of basically interrogating that story, looking my fear dead in the eye, not sure how it was going to go. I mean, I had an anxiety coach, a speech coach, a doctor. I mean, like, I I was just like, let's do it all. You know, I I literally wrote a new story of what it would be like to speak in front of those 800 people. I recited it out loud every day. And fast forward, you know, I get on stage in front of the 800 people. It was an excruciating six weeks, to be candid. And it went awesome. I loved it. It was fun. I wasn't nervous. I mean, I had a little butterflies like everybody does, which I didn't know. That's a normal thing. You know, little butterflies at the beginning. And then it was a blast. And I, I think... This is what we're talking about here. Everybody has something like that in their life, some story, maybe it's bigger, maybe it's smaller, that's holding them back. And it doesn't have to. You really can tell a different story and be free to reach your potential. You know, our our brains and computers are not the same. And they're certainly not the same in every way. But the one place where they are similar is that we can reprogram our thinking. And most of us, I mean, I think it's just, it's typical for the normal people, even if you didn't grow up in a traumatic background. And I kind of did, but most people don't. But even in those situations, you know, there are stories that we collect over time. You know, it may be a mentor, it may be something a teacher said, it may be something a best friend said or a coach said or a pastor said or whatever. And kind of like barnacles on a ship, they just kind of stick to us. And, and there comes a point where we go, you know, I don't like the results I'm getting in my life, or I don't like the results I'm getting in my, my business. And you kind of move past the action. And most business owners in particular have a bias toward action, but to move to say, well, I wonder if it's my thinking that's driving this. And, you know, sure enough, it mostly is our thinking that's driving it. Well, another way that our, our brains and computers are similar is I can't help but think of like, well, what program is running in the background that's slowing all of this down? Right. Got to purge that mental ram. (laughs) Reboot. Yes. You talk about intuition in the book as well. And I'd love to hear what role does that play and how does it factor into all this? Yeah. Intuition is one of those things that is fascinating. We, I tend to think, or we tend to think that, you know, I'm intuitive or I'm not, or that person is so intuitive, but really all intuition is is the ability to rapidly process information and to take in cues and then to be able to make a decision based on that or come to a conclusion based on that. So there's a story that we tell in the book, and it was actually a race car story, where there's this race car driver and he's going full speed in the straight and he's about to go over this hill. And so he can't see all the cars in front of him, but he senses something's wrong and he hits the brakes. And everybody was saying to him, how did you know? Because there was like a 20 car pileup on the other side of the hill. And if he had gone full speed into that, 
probably would have killed him, probably would have killed some other people. But he had this intuition to hit the brakes. And so as they began to go back and interrogate that intuition, the thing he said is he said, you know, I think what happened was I saw the crowd not looking at me, but looking over the hill. And I intuited that something was wrong on the other side of the hill. So I hit the brakes. That's kind of how intuition functions. Everybody has this ability, but it's a rapid processing of information, of experiences, and then coming to a conclusion that is not conscious to sort of the executive function of our brain. It's happening at a subconscious level, but it really influences the decisions we make. This is part of why it's important to be aware that we have a narrator, because one of the places that people can get in trouble with intuition, it's actually very helpful, and it's a a really great feature of our brains. But where we can get in trouble is when we have stories based on past experiences or predictions of the future that can cause us to be biased or prejudiced in some way that we're not aware of. And so it's helpful to be aware of the stories we're telling and even sometimes where those come from and to have interrogated that those stories so that if, for example, we have an intuition about a person or a situation that might be skewed by our narrator in some way, we have awareness about that and we can choose, we can match our intuition with our reason and we can really get the best possible outcome by having the benefit of that self-awareness. So we have we have all the great parts about our intuition that and that fast processing, but we can pull our executive functioning into it and really get the best of both worlds by marrying the intuition and the reason. Not either or, both and. Yeah, right. yeah. To me, intuition seems like this almost more mature future version of me or is the trained in, you know, working with the narrator and and knowing and identify one, having the awareness of it, working with it, knowing whether it was fed by me or some external source, et cetera. It's almost that like expert triage mode when it comes to your thinking. I love that description of it. You know, I am a person who has a really high level of intuition. It's just it's been true for me for a long time. And what I've learned to do, particularly in a professional context, is to trust but verify. You know, usually my intuition is right. You know, nine times out of 10, it's right, but it's not always right. And it's also difficult to explain to other people, you know, if you've ever had one of those feelings that feels overwhelmingly true, and yet you need to get other people on board with it or, you know, explain it to your spouse or something like that. It's helpful to then see if through more conscious reasoning, you can come to the same conclusion that's not always possible and it's not always necessary, but it can be helpful, you know, to trust but verify so that you avoid that one out of 10 times when your intuition might be wrong. But you also give yourself the benefit of being able to explain it more easily to other people instead of like, I just know, just trust me, you know, which doesn't always go over so well. I can't help but think of also getting to the point where you've got a trusted council of friends or mastermind that you're in or 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 in your case creating a culture inside of the company where it's trusted that it's a safe space to bring up ideas like let's not name the company after the founder anymore things like that and that it just makes sense that as the as you foster that culture or as you create that collaborative mode you can trust external narration one but two you learn to choose who to trust it from even more so Yes, you're bringing up a really important point is that often it's difficult to become self-aware about our thinking. It's hard to see our own thinking. 
that's the value of giving permission to the people that are close to us to challenge our thinking. My youngest daughter, Megan's youngest sister, will often say when somebody says something disempowering, she'll say, well, if you say so, you're like, like, uh, I could, I could never do that thing. And she will say, well, if you say so, which brings up, you know, the, the value of somebody just challenging our thinking in real time. And it obviously has to be somebody that has the permission. And we've all inside our family and inside our company, giving each other permission. This is also the value of having a coach. And, um, you know, we have a big coaching program called Business Accelerator, but this is really kind of the focus and where we spend the bulk of our time is trying to get inside the thinking of our clients so that we can empower them to think different thoughts so they experience a different reality. And usually the gateway, the easiest way to understand what somebody's thinking is to listen to their language. You know, I talked about my golfing buddy who would say things like, you idiot, why do you always, you know, shank it off the tee box? You know, whatever it is. So, you know, an executive coach, a good executive coach will interrogate you and ask those questions and help you get your thinking out on the table where you can examine it. And again, that usually starts with language. Yeah, I, I think that's the other thing that the, the language that we use, that we talk about. I mean, I think a, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I think a great companion book to this is John Acuff's Soundtracks. I was thrilled to see that he came out with a version for teenagers because I have a, I now have an 18 year old daughter and I wished that I had had one, this book and that one back when I was her age, because Mm -hmm. can you imagine just the circumventing and the, and again, it speaks to the plasticity of our minds that even now I can undo, let's use that word again, uncouple all the bad narration and move towards the good narration, which is obviously the goal of this book is to to get people to realize that one awareness of your narration two that you have power as a narrator and that you can change the course of your whole life which aligns with all the other books you've come out with well if you think about it eric you know the the people that we admire maybe it's mark cuban or these people that have you know amassed fortunes or built amazing things or innovated technology you know if if we're really honest you know some of them are really smart no question about that Some of them have amazing life experiences, but mostly they think different. They just think differently. It's not that they're that much smarter than us, if at all, or they've just had, you know, the benefit of contacts, which we probably had some of that, but they just think a different way. You know, the things that might scare us apparently don't scare them. Different thinking. I can't help but think that there are people listening right now who are tracking with what we're saying. They're on board. They're nodding along. They're saying, you know what? I felt like, again, uh, this this podcast episode alerted me to there's something running in the background, like I said earlier, that I need to identify in whatever area that is. Obviously, we want to get them to the point where they're doing that work and, and undoing and recalibrating and setting new goals that they can achieve. Other than obviously first grabbing the copy of the book, where do they start? What's the beginning first step here? I would say recognizing that you have agency, that your thinking can change. And then one of the things that's been enormously helpful to me, we talk about in the book, is to write those, whenever I'm frustrated, whenever I'm angry, whenever I'm fearful, write down on paper the sentences that are in my head. What is the narrator saying? And try to do it, as you talked about, Eric and Megan, do it with compassion. This isn't about judgment. It's just trying to get it on the table 
what is the narrator saying about this situation? And that gives us the opportunity to change that narration. But that's where I'd say it starts. Great. Obviously, I want everybody to go pick up a copy of the book. And you've been gracious enough to go ahead and give me a unique URL. So I, instead of, hey, where can people find your book? Like most podcasts end with when people have a book. I have a place I can already tell you, which is to go to mindyourmindsetbook.com slash beyond. It's appropriate title. So I'll say that again, and then it'll be in the, I'll link it up in the show notes and everything, but mindyourmindsetbook.com slash beyond. And then I think there's some bonuses too for people that are in the pre-order and or, you know, early stages of purchasing as this is releasing. Yes, absolutely. Over $500 worth of free bonuses. All you have to do is buy the book and then come back and enter your receipt information. So you will automatically, if you buy the print or the Kindle version of the book, don't buy the audio book. You don't need to because we will give you the audio book for free. That's a $27 value. We'll give you something called a self-coacher desk tool because part of what we teach you in the book is how to coach yourself on your own thinking. And then there's a Mind Your Mindset online course that uh, is about a $479 value. So all these things together are over $500. That's excellent. So again, I would encourage everybody to jump in immediately. The link in the show notes, or again, if you're, if you're out walking, driving, et cetera, make a note, save this podcast for later, come back to the show notes, click that link, but it's a uh, mindyourmindsetbook.com slash beyond. Don't want to forget that. So. Michael, Megan, it's been great talking with you. I can't wait till we can do it again. Obviously, this is the brand new thing out now, but uh, I'm sure there's some more great stuff coming on the horizon. Can't wait to talk with you about it then. Thanks, Eric. We always appreciate you having us on. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Michael Hyatt and Megan Hyatt Miller like I did. It's always great to talk with them. Make sure to grab the book, It is available right now for pre-order and all the bonuses apply, like they said. You can find the link to that in the show notes at beyondthetodolist.com or in the show notes in your podcast player app of choice. While you're there, think of somebody that you know needs to hear it and do me and them a favor by sharing this episode with them. Let them know you were thinking about them while you were listening. Thank you so much for sharing. Thanks again for listening, and I will see you next episode.